Please turn in your Bibles again to Psalm 22. And this will be in preparation for our sermon text, which comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. I'll read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 3. But we'll begin with Psalm 22. The crucified one in the voice of prophecy says this. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. And now to the pastoral epistle of Paul to Timothy, chapter 3. He writes, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Amen. Just 10 days ago, I drove a 1,000 miles to attend a meeting of Presbytery. At that meeting, which was in Colorado, at that meeting, we examined one man for his ordination next month in Kansas, and we actually ordained and installed another man as pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian congregation there in Westminster, Colorado. Those were the only items on the Presbytery's agenda. Those two men. And then I turned around and drove a thousand miles home. Presbyteries invest a great deal of time and money training their students under care 
how to preach the word of God for the benefit of the congregations that they'll eventually pastor. For example, presbyteries generally help the student of theology defray the costs of attending seminary. When I was in seminary, as a student under care of Pittsburgh Presbytery, 40 years ago, seminary tuition was offered as a forgivable loan to be discharged by the student over the course of 10 years of service within the Reformed Presbyterian Church. In addition to that defraying of the tuition, the Pittsburgh Presbytery sent me a monthly stipend of $85. I suspect the amount's gone up over the last 40 years. I rather hope so. But beyond helping a man through seminary, presbyteries take the men under their care and do what we did in Colorado 10 days ago. They publicly examine them in various areas ranging from personal godliness to systematic theology, to church history, and more. Additionally, every year that a student's in seminary, his presbytery requires him to preach what used to be called, anyway, a specimen of improvement, which was a sermon on an assigned topic or an assigned text from the Bible the presbytery would assign the text for the student to prepare and preach on it. The student then prepares and preaches this sermon before presbytery so that the presbytery is able to assess that man's gifts as a teacher and preacher of God's word. Because preparing and ordaining men for the gospel ministry is one of the most important duties presbyteries have. The Apostle Paul makes it clear here in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3 that any man who aspires to the office of overseer, that is, the pastor or shepherd of Christ's flock, he must be able to teach. Must be able to teach. The man may be godly. He may have a winsome way about him. He may be good with people from the elderly, being comfortable with them, comfortable with ministry to young children, comfortable in ministry to everybody in between those age, age groups. He may be a great administrator. He may be punctual, clean, reverent, all those things. If he's not able to teach, And he certainly has a place in the kingdom of God. Beyond question, he does. But it's not in the pulpit. And it's not behind a lectern. It's not in front of a class. Today I want us to think through this biblical qualification for the office of elder. Able to teach. It actually applies across the board to teaching and ruling elders, all elders, all overseers of the Lord's church. All of us who oversee the Lord's church need to be ready, willing, and able to teach. For some, those of us who are called 
teaching elders or pastors or ministers. That is our principal calling in life. Those who are set apart specifically to do this really ought to do it well. Today I want us to look first, very briefly, at the teacher himself. The man. That's point number one. Our second main point will then be his teaching. Specifically, the aim of his teaching, the circumstances of his teaching, the method of his teaching, and finally, really most importantly, the substance of his teaching. But our first main point has to do with the teacher himself. We have been busily engaged here for, in a search for the man who's destined to succeed me here in the pastorate. Already we've seen and heard several men. It may be that we see and hear several more along the way. I don't know. But all of these men have been certified by their respective presbyteries or expect very soon to be certified as eligible to receive a pastoral call in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And as we consider them, our natural inclination, I think, is to look for certain traits or characteristics. The pastor ought to look a certain way, carry himself a certain way, speak a certain way, behave a certain way. And let me emphasize that all of these personal considerations have a place. They do. These factors help us discriminate between one pastoral candidate and another. Because very plainly, men in their personal characteristics differ from one another. Some would fit a congregation like this one better than some others. I know candidates for the pastoral ministry from times past, men who uh, have discovered that their own voice, maybe it's a little too raspy or a little too high-pitched or whatever, their voice, or their physical stature, their physical stature, or their weight, or their tattoos, or some other factor that's difficult for them to change at this point in their life, they have discovered that some of these factors work against them when they're looking for a place to serve the Lord's church. But whenever we look at the man himself, I want us to bear in mind the most important thing about him. And we find it actually not in the pastoral epistles at all. We find it in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Now, a little background. I remember a presbytery meeting some years ago in which we were examining a young man for some phase of his licensure to preach the gospel. And after about a half hour of questions and answers, the examiner asked this student, Mr. So-and-so, 
Do you consider yourself to be God's gift to the church? Which, of course, is a trick question. Because the right answer is, yes. Yes. The men who fill our pulpits, the men who devote themselves to the word of God and prayer, the men who prepare for and eventually discharge the duties of pastors and teachers, these men are, in truth, God's gift to the church. Look at Ephesians 7, or rather, Ephesians 4, verses 7 and following. After laying out the mystical oneness of Christ's church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. After laying that out, the apostle immediately goes on to say, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So it's not just the aptitude for teaching, that's a gift. <coughs> it's not just the skill, it's not just the ability to teach. The man who succeeds me here will himself be the risen and ascended Christ's gift to you, to us. Our very own pastor and teacher, whoever he is, whenever he arrives to undertake this office, let's receive him as Christ's flesh and blood gift to this congregation. Because he is. Now let's talk about his teaching. When the elder teaches, what does he aim to accomplish by his teaching? Does his aim perhaps have less to do with Christ and more to do with himself? God forbid. God spare us from men like that. A good teacher's goal, in a very true sense, is actually to hide himself just as completely as he can behind the word of God he preaches and teaches. Now, his personality may possibly be a helpful tool in hitting the target, but projecting his own personality onto an audience is never a legitimate end in itself. Because he's not a comedian. He's not an entertainer. He's not a purveyor of personal opinions. He's a teacher. Now, Paul identifies the proper aim of the church's teaching ministry in verse 5 of chapter 1 of this same letter, 1 Timothy. He tells Timothy there in chapter 1, verse 5, 
He tells Timothy to stay on there in Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sincere faith. It's love. That's why we meet here week after week. That's why we listen to sermons. That's why the sermons that we hear aren't mere lectures. It's because the goal of our teaching, the aim of it, is love. Now, lectures on the Bible are important. Back in the 16th century, in Geneva, John Calvin lectured every day on the Bible. Lectures transmit knowledge. Lectures promote understanding. But lectures are addressed, for the most part, to the intellect and sermons to the will. Lectures make us knowledgeable, but knowledge is only a start. Knowledge gets your foot in the door. The goal of our instruction, what we're really aiming at in our teaching, is love, which for selfish, unlovely sinners is really quite a dramatic transformation. There's another place Paul addresses what we're aiming at in our teaching, the goal of our instruction, and it brings us back to Ephesians 4. He's just listed those church officers that Christ gave as gifts to the church. Then he goes on in verse 12 of Ephesians 4 to tell us why Christ gave them. And he says, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The church clearly isn't yet everything she one day will be. Teachers aim to help the church get there to become more loving, as we've seen, but not love as the world loves, not at all. Love as Christ loves. The teacher aims in his teaching to transform his congregation by the Spirit of God more perfectly into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, to bring us up to the fullness of his stature. Sadly, Mary Lou and I do not dance. And the reason we don't dance has nothing to do whatever with our convictions about dancing. At the Red Sea, Miriam danced, didn't she? As uh, he, the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem, David danced before it. Good men and good women dance 
But as you may have noticed, Mary Lou and I don't exactly see eye to eye. We don't see eye to eye, that is, unless I am, happen to be standing in a hole about 12 inches deep. There's something elegant, isn't there? Uh, think a generation back to uh, Fred and Ginger, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers. There is something elegant about a couple who are similar in stature dancing. And there is something slightly awkward, even comical, in the dance of two people who are vastly different in stature. The teacher's aim in the church, the teacher's aim in his teaching is to bring the bride of Christ up to the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. It is to fit her more fully for him. So that's the aim. What are the circumstances in which this teaching properly takes place? Obviously, from the pulpit. Obviously, in the classroom. But let's not forget the venue of people's homes in their living rooms on a Lord's Day afternoon and midweek Bible studies in people's homes. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that this teaching really ought to go on when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you rise up and when you lie down. The Apostle Peter taught in the home of Cornelius, a man he'd never met before. Philip taught an Ethiopian court official riding in his chariot along a desert road. The risen Jesus taught those two disciples on the road leading from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And Jesus also taught along countless other roads. Not to mention the synagogues in Galilee and Judea. And his open air preaching on mountains and plains. He taught crowds numbering in the thousands. And he taught one-on-one -on -one to individuals who were as divergent in their backgrounds as Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He taught the crowds of Capernaum who were gathered on the shore. He taught them from a boat that had put out into the Sea of Galilee. He never needed notes, never needed a lectern. Jesus spoke from the heart, from the Holy Spirit welling up beyond measure within him. And he missed no opportunity to teach. Nor should the man call to oversee the Lord's church. Remember Paul's charge to Pastor Timothy in his second letter, chapter 4? Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So those are the circumstances of the elders' teaching. At all times, in all places.
Whenever and wherever God opens a door for ministry, let the man teach. The teacher's method? Well, of course, the man's method is going to fit the circumstances, isn't it? It has to. It has to fit the circumstances because the elder isn't always going to have his lesson planned with him. He's not always going to have his whiteboard and dry erase markers. There came a time when Jesus taught a crowd simply by writing in the dust on the ground. The teacher's method has to fit the need of the moment. And method, after all, is nothing more than the humble servant, the handmaiden of the message. Sometimes our method is to catechize, as we did this morning. Sometimes we preach. Sometimes we discuss things. What's important as to the teacher's method is the directive Paul once again passed on to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 4, where he says, Let your teaching and exhortations exhortation be with all patience and instruction. With all patience and instruction. Let no student ever come to class worried that he's going to be publicly humiliated when he forgets his material or when he makes a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. Iron sharpens iron, says the proverb. But how does iron sharpen iron? Iron sharpens iron by striking off all those little bits and burrs of iron that aren't quite where they should be yet. Mistakes that are thought through, mistakes that are lovingly corrected, actually sharpen us. So to that extent, we can celebrate our mistakes, because mistakes are fresh opportunities to learn together. So that's the teacher's proper method, with all patience and instruction. Now finally, and most importantly, what is the substance of the elder's teaching? That is, what is the core and essence of it? And I hope you already know the answer to that question very well. The substance of our teaching is, in a word, Christ. Christ, the incarnate God-man. Christ, the unswervingly obedient to God his Father. Christ crucified, Christ risen, ascended, and now reigning over all things for his beloved church. This is the only Christ the Bible offers us. And the man who's able to teach can teach and preach this Christ from the Bible's very first page to its very last page. Christ is there, for instance, in the creation account. Did you know that? 
He's there in the creation account being the very word of God spoken by which he called all things into being. He's there in the promise first spoken to Eve in the garden that in the fullness of time from her would come one to crush the deceiving serpent's head. He's there in the promises made to the patriarchs. He's there in the Passover lamb of Egypt. He's there in the law. He's there in the scarlet cord that Rahab hung in her window in Jericho. It's no overstatement to say that he's there on every page. The risen Jesus himself tells his gathered church that first Lord's Day evening, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The substance of our teaching then is Christ. So the elder who's able to teach God's people searches the scriptures rather like a miner mines the deep places of the earth for its hidden treasures. But unlike those laboring for mere diamonds or emeralds, neither the conscientious elder in his search nor the church that benefits from his studies will ever be disappointed. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our King. And Christ is the message we teach. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the substance of the message of the gospel. We thank you that in him all things hold together. And to him every passage of the Bible leads. We pray for our own need for a pastor in the coming months and years. And we pray that you would help us in our search for him. We pray that you would be preparing him providentially. And we pray that you would be preparing us to receive him. Not as a mere employee, but as Christ's gift to the church. We ask these things with thankful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.